0: Welcome to EduMeasure, a podcast for teachers, students, parents, and others concerned with transforming teaching and learning, an exploration of creative and innovative responses to current challenges in education. Today's podcast is a continuation of the previous episode interviews with recent college graduates that focus on how our students understand the purposes and values of their college educations. I'm your host, Bernd Esterbrook a professor at a small liberal arts college in Illinois and today in part 2 we will continue our part 1 interviews with the three recent graduates from my own institution Mr. Adam Ens Mr. Matthew Hunter and Mr. Jaden Kasai In the next portion of the interview, I was interested in identifying challenges or obstacles in college that had made learning difficult for them. My goal was to identify the ways they thought that contemporary education could be improved or enhanced. Their responses ranged widely, from discussions of personal limitations or deficits that had to be overcome before they were able to take full advantage of what their classrooms offered, to structural or institutional barriers that imposed arbitrary or unnecessary limits on meaningful classroom interactions.
1: That is a perfect segue because we are now at the crux of a societal issue where education has lost its identity to the purposes of progress that is measurable. I want to emphasize that there are uh, multiple, multiple kinds of students out there, but I'm going to create a, a quick dichotomy. There's student number one who takes control, trusts themselves to get the work done. So they say, as long as I am, quote unquote, succeeding, no one can challenge me. No one can take that away from me. So what do they do? They have mastered passing their classes. They are able to go into any situation, any classroom with any professor, and come out on the other end of that semester with an A. They're not pretty A's, but they're A's, and that's what matters to them. I believe this is the category I fell into. It was internally driven by a need to always impress my professors like yourself, but also to earn this right to be in an educational system. The foil of this student is student number two. Student number two doesn't trust themselves, and they definitely don't trust the system. So to play it safe, they say, I see the game. I know what you're trying to do here. You want me to do X, Y, and Z, but really that stuff's not going to help me in the end. It's all just to get a piece of paper that will then allow me to get a job, which will then allow me to eventually retire happily ever after. They have been sold that, but they don't believe it but they don't have any other options. And here, ironically, is where a liberal arts education could be a savior for them, could give them one more window to look out and aspire to. But because that takes a little bit of vulnerability, because it takes a lot of trust in something outside of themselves, they rather play the game and pretend that they're not fools. But either way, these mindsets are the greatest challenge, because they first have to be seen by the professors and the teachers so that they can bring them to the awareness of the students. Otherwise, they will end up just like I did. It took me going abroad, studying abroad in New Zealand, and being offered a very unique opportunity where I did not actually have to get A's anymore. For the first time ever, it was pass or fail. And I am so very glad that I took the opportunity to say, Adam, you've already passed in the first three weeks of the semester. Why not see what it feels like to let go? The reason why this interaction is a struggle for me is because everything about my education up until I decided I needed out of the system told me I had to be prepared. I never entered a classroom where I didn't know what the answer was. So sitting across from you, looking at you and knowing that you're about to ask me questions that I do not know if I know the answer is the most terrifying experience. That is wrong. This should be the most joyful aspect of any interaction, the not knowing, but our education system is sapping the joy out, taking away the unknown or painting it as this thing to be feared when it is, it is the uh, fertile crescent where all knowledge is hopefully born and enjoyed. We, as a society, can't create more people who are trained to be right.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the discourse right now is about AI and um, technology advancement and, again, just how much information is out there and how much of that information is awful and not useful. But to me, uh, and maybe this is my undergraduate in psychology and my fascination with psychology, it's about the emotional state of your students and your educators because these are variables that you can never control for these things are always changing and we can see definitely some sociological shifts with times but for the most part people are extremely un- unpredictable and that's what's really difficult about it, the advancement of knowledge and and education as a whole as a pursuit of advancing knowledge so one of my biggest obstacles was uh, just to generally talk about it, i had a lot of uh, familial issues back home um, there was a lot going on with my family uh, these are things that are hard for anyone to deal with, much less someone who's halfway across the country and trying to learn. And there were definitely days in the classroom where I just showed up, kind of opened my eyes for 50 minutes to an hour and a half and packed up my stuff and went eight and kind of went home. And that's, at no, that's no fault to my educator, and I don't blame myself for that either. Uh, as humans, we just sometimes need days to process or days to whatever you need to do on that day. And learning's not at the forefront of your mind, and I don't even think that those days I was capable of retaining a single piece of information presented to me no matter how much I was normally interested in it. So what I'm excited about is the care that good educators have for their students on a personal level, and in a way that when certain professors would notice, hey, you seem kind of checked out today. You usually raise your hand or have an interjection or have a question every single class period, and today, you didn't, or for the last week even, you haven't even offered up any answers to the questions I post to the class, and you're usually my first student raising their hand. and That kind of connection with my professors made it a lot easier for me to say, okay, well, here's the gist of what's going on. I hope you understand that learning's not the forefront of my mind right now. I hope you can work with me. I want to still do the work. I want to still learn, but it's probably not going to come as readily or easily to me as it normally does. And not even easily, I don't think is the right word. More so, uh, I'm, I'm not as excited about it as I normally am. And so having those interpersonal connections with professors really helped me in in that way. And it didn't totally help me get over the obstacles that my life, uh, my personal life presented, but it definitely made them stumbling blocks rather than something I'd really fell on my face on. From my
3: personal experience, one of the greatest challenges that I faced was... Well, we had the pandemic, and so that created the need for virtual classrooms. They're decent. Virtual classrooms, virtual online teaching does, you know, it does the job. But education is a lot more than just, like you say, it's supposed to be a transformational experience. And taking classes on Zoom was not transformational at all for me. From a practical, technical standpoint, there wasn't really anything missing. I mean, you had the teacher, you had the students in the online classroom, you had the materials that were being shown on the screen. So by that definition, you didn't really have to be in the the actual classroom. So when when I was in grad school, I took a journalism course, and we were actually able to be there in person. We didn't take any time when we were doing online courses. if the weather was bad or whatever, he'd rather, the professor would rather cancel the, the course for the day than actually do the online teaching because I think he, prefer, he much preferred the in-person learning. In-person learning, I, I would obviously argue is in terms of quality education and learning is much more conducive than virtual learning. A lot of students that I was with at University of Illinois also expressed their dissatisfaction with online learning and there was a semester I went a full semester without actually having a single class session virtual or in person the virtual learning had become so abstract we didn't have a class session we just they just posted their assignments online and there was there was no discussion there was no i think I only met one of the professors twice or three times during the semester and that was really it so as you know, I was also going through a lot too. I my my dad had passed away recently and my grandmother. And so virtual learning kind of it was a non signal that like, oh, the education isn't as important as it used to be. And for me, I had a thousand and one things on my plate. And so when during this semester when we had no classes i was kind of falling behind on my graduate studies because it's like okay all right i don't have a class i don't have homework today or whatever let's focus on talking to the lawyer or looking at the rights of interstate succession and virtual it the virtual online format just wasn't cutting it i needed i needed the in person education because in person means for me it's It's that important. It's important that you need to be summoned from your home to the classroom to pay attention and to participate in the discourse of the classroom.
0: In the next section of the interview, I was hoping to inspire anecdotes about the best experiences these former students had in their college classrooms the instructors who inspired them, as well as meaningful interactions with fellow students. I wanted to know who their role models were. What made those classrooms so memorable? In their responses, it was clear that gratitude to their best teachers inspired principles of human interaction that they now use as guides for their relationships with others. They argued that the best classrooms served them as a foundation for their ideals a means of creating a humane and mutually beneficial community.
2: Yeah, I think what inspires me most in any classroom is a healthy balance of competition and cooperation. Competition I think it's a bad, uh, a bad rap nowadays. I think sometimes we're really focused on the cooperation piece and, and how we function as a whole culturally. But I think that competition can be very healthy, not just between two individuals, and I think that's what people think of immediately when they hear competition. But I think competing against myself and having some set rules and goals and expectations to compete against myself in a way for me to see growth throughout My time in any given classroom really motivates and inspires me to to go into the classroom and and just get after it in a way, to kind of speak like an athlete there. But uh, on the days, I think, when inspiration is most important is on the days that you don't want to be there the most. Inspiration and motivation work in tandem, and so you're not inspired that day. The fluorescent lights kind of make everything look a little bit more bland and All the information just seems like words and syllables and letters. And I think we've all experienced that as a student. And so what gets us through those days and what still has us coming away from a lecture or any sort of classroom activity feeling like, okay, I got something out of that. I think that's the motivation piece. And so I think inspiration is really important. And that's the framework that an educator can put up. Hey, here's where you start. for me. It's here's where you started. Here's where I think you can be. Where do you think you can be? And that's what inspires me initially. And then also being able to see these things and see is uh, meta- metaphorical, of course, but being able to know these things are there motivates me to, to put my 100% of whatever I have that day towards learning while I'm in that space. And then oftentimes I find that, kind of like inertia, once I've started getting into that mental zone where I'm, where I'm thinking about things at a deeper level, where I'm actually enjoying the content and the learning process and the little bit of a headache that some um, philosophy classes, uh, I took a philosophy class my senior year and it definitely gave me a headache a lot. But learning to enjoy that uh, is, is definitely, for me, really based in motivation, which I view, like I said, is different from inspiration.
1: very lucky. Like I mentioned, uh, my mother was a teacher and a specialist in teaching reading. I don't know how she was able to get her master's while raising three young boys, but she did it. Love you, mom. The thing about it is that she gave me a foundation few other students especially get to see, and that is learning as a joy. I am not special. I've just been handed a very rare opportunity an opportunity to see on both sides of this coin of education from a young age so I could expect good things. From a really young age, I had role models burnt into my brain that weren't going to help me succeed. And that's always bit me in the butt. I was told at a young age, the quiet person gets the most respect because they're not blabbering like an idiot. I've taken that to heart and cut myself off from many conversations because of it, and only too late learned that the louder person gets most attention. This is not something to fear, but it is something difficult that most people have to, I think, come to terms with. Uh, but it has really realigned what I value. It's realigned who I look up to. The people I find inspiring me the most were people that took whatever they were given and, with like a mastery of improv, are able to say yes and able to take any mindset and give you something else to think about. It's kind of like social alchemy. You hand them a lead situation and they weave it into gold. They make you feel like the possibilities are infinite. These folks have been speckled throughout my life, but I can't help but mention majority of them I've met whilst working on this campus. This campus is somehow constantly attracting a healthy mindset, a mindset that endows those who adopt it with a positivity that's contagious. I try not to have this toxic positivity mindset that is very um, present in our uh, Western culture, but I do like to believe that there is always a space to see something from an authentically engaging perspective. And much like you've always taught us curiosity. Curiosity will always lead to more patience for any situation.
3: So, so if I was teaching a writing course, for example, so what Professor Capo did was he made sure that we were in a computer lab to make sure we weren't using our own computers. Now, it wasn't just for the, you know, we might have, you know, games or what, you know, some, we might be working on homework or whatever, but it was because he kind of wanted us to have a, a blank slate to be working off of every day. It kind of forced us to depend more on our creativity of the moment than of last night or last week or whatever. I know a computer lab is probably pretty expensive. I don't know what the budget of this imaginary school would be, but. I suppose that would be one of the elements that I think were, was successful for me. It, I would incorporate that into it. And then also, you know Jim Kerbaugh, who passed away some time back. He was talking about there's no useful writing handbook. You know, there's hundreds or thousands of them out there, but he wasn't a very big fan of them. And I'm trying to decide whether I would want to incorporate any of the handbooks that I bought over the years into into the classroom.
0: The interviews concluded with a question about what the future holds, both for their personal and professional lives, and for students that will follow them in college. Where do these graduates see our educational system going, and what needs to be done if education is to fulfill its promise to the next generation of college students? Their responses were sometimes sobering, but they expressed a confidence in the value of what they had learned that they believe can and must inspire how we shape the education of the future.
1: There is much to look forward to, and that is each and every cycle of students I believe wholeheartedly is ready willing, interested to learn something. They just have not been given the space yet. If education of the liberal arts variety has any hope, it has to keep creating the spaces that you have created yourself in your classrooms and so many other professors and staff on campus have done. It doesn't always have to be a classroom though. Back to the perfect classroom idea, it has to be organically grown in every situation time and time again i hear and am elated to find that people find the library one of the safest places on campus one of the most comfortable places on campus a space where they feel they can explore what they want to do with themselves as a academic as a student as a person that is invaluable and it is an environment that I aim to steward. My hope, and this has always been the goal, is to just tap on students lightly, reminding them where they're at, reminding them this is one of the last chances they have to leap outside of these systems, see them for what they are, and reimagine how they want to navigate them. That is a gift that I was aware of when I was here, And I can't imagine anything more pressing as I am now currently trying my best to study the uh, art of librarianship and information sciences. I can tell you the tectonic plates are ripping apart and we are about to fall in a vast chasm of AI. It is terrifying how every aspect of almost every textbook I'm currently reading, which has mostly been updated, is unsure of what to tell librarians, is unsure of how to prepare them for the unpreparable. Everything that is seen as librarianship is assisting, uh, helping, being a catalyst for an academic world. And that's not as valued when you can just trust a machine or an algorithm to uh, drum up something that's darn near just as good. Curiosity needs a mirror, and the best mirror is a human face. When you ask the right question and you trigger a truly authentic engagement with another human being, it is the most powerful feedback loop I've ever experienced. It is one of the joys that drives me to want to learn more of the craft of librarianship. What value we add, how we get students to reimagine their relationship with information.
3: Well, I think you've noted the recession of the forced recession of uh, liberal arts education. It's becoming more of a job incubator than uh, a place of true academic learning. I would argue uh, a workforce drone. I believe people, or teachers, are still using virtual learning for one reason or another. Sometimes it's justified, but others are just using it as a crutch, like some of my professors did in graduate school. They didn't. There was no need, but what what schools look like 10 years from now? Well, I suppose that depends on what they define as really important. From what I'm seeing on the national and state levels of education, our educational professionals are trying to perform triage on our education system, which is very much in need of repair. And they're performing this triage by paying all attention to one or two issues instead of the one or two thousand that are plaguing the system. I mean, you look at All the countries in the world, I mean, South Korea is number one in reading and math, third in science. Finland is number two in reading and math, number one in science. Now, I understand they have much smaller populations compared to us, but still, when you boil it down, there's a reason why we are so far down the education spectrum compared to so many other countries. Now, where do I see ourselves 10 years from now? I honestly can't say. I'm kind of too scared to say or think about it. But I suppose if I was going to try to be as accurate and objective as I can, not to, sound, not to be a doomsayer or anything, but I know that given the development of artificial intelligence, a significant role it's already beginning to play in our education field, students using it as a way of generating their essays, maybe polishing up a little bit and then submitting it to their professors, the level of technology is certainly going to skyrocket within the next 10 years, guaranteed. I'm not going to say it's going to be like the Matrix or anything like that, but I know that there are strengths to incorporating technology into our education system, no doubt. But at the same time, it kind of acts like a crutch. When I was at Illinois College, if the technology wouldn't work, that was it. You were done, you were done with the class already. We couldn't function without the technology. And that's kind of the theme, not just for education, but for society itself. If the technology crashes, or perhaps even refuses to cooperate, we're kind of screwed. We have no redundancies, no contingencies for anything remotely like that, if our technology were to just stop working. When it comes to artificial intelligence, I've been, I've been reading studies, and the really scary thing is not whether in artificial intelligence becomes malevolent, although I do think our lack of being able to imprint our moral ethics into the coding is alarming enough. But for me, I think the really scary thing is if it becomes so intelligent that it evolves so beyond us that our wills differ and we don't have the same end goals and will essentially become an ant to the construction worker where... The construction worker holds no ill will against the ant, but when you're putting up a building you're not going to be concerned with the safety and well-being of an ant. And the same thing will be the case of us in artificial intelligence, I'm afraid. Suppose, for example, you're familiar with the paperclip maximizer theory, where it's like we tell it to make as many paperclips as it can, and to do that it demolishes all the buildings to maximize its capability of producing paperclips.
2: Yeah, when I, when I saw this question when you sent me the list, this this is the one that stumped me for, I think, the longest time when I was just sitting there and, and pondering, you know, how do I answer that? And I, And I think I'm going to lean back on my psychological, humanistic, maybe even roots of, I think that even as technology advances and as information becomes more and more readily available, I don't see that stopping. I hope that education is based on humans and, and, and how humans learn I, I mean when I when I read about these you know AIs generating essays and things like that it, it makes me chuckle at times because I know it's I know it's going to be an issue but I don't see it being an issue long term for education and maybe that's optimistic of me but because you know even as these things get better and better, at Replicating what an essay might look like, it will only ever hurt students who use these things or people who buy into this sort of technology that 's not human, and it will only motivate people really committed to education and you know the furthering of human knowledge. It, it will motivate them to say, "You know what yeah that, that that stuff's happening. that sucks, but what can I do about it what?" How can I fight this? And even if you can't catch all of the essays written by ChatGPT, you're still trying to catch those students who are interested, who are genuinely interested in learning. As far as the landscape for education, I don't see it, and this this I know is naive for me to say, but I don't see it changing too much in the best classrooms. I only see the landscape of education changing in, if, if you had to put it on a scale, like you're below 50% is if you had to score a classroom. Because when people get, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but when people look for easy solutions, that's where these technological, uh, I'm doing air quotes here. Advancements come in, right? Oh, how can I streamline this? How can I make it easier for my students to learn? And when you're trying to make things easier, that's just not education. Nothing about learning is easy. It's probably one of the most cognitively painful processes we can go through as humans. And that's what gives me hope for the future, because the best classrooms will remain the best classrooms, because instructors and students alike will be committed to being real human beings rather than utilizing or leaning on technology that really will not help them long-term because they're going to be able to have that huge base of human history to work off of. Education hasn't changed for a really, really, really long time, and I don't know much about the history of education, but what I do know is some things are core tenets of education, and even as technology advances, the people relatively have limits, human limits, and as long as we're committed to just slowly Expanding those limits, I think that the landscape of education is going to be okay because those best classrooms will still be the ones most admired institutionally by people within the education field.
0: I want to thank my guests for this episode, Mr. Matthew Hunter, Mr. Adam Enns, and Mr. Jaden Kasai. As we reflect on what contemporary education means and how it could be improved, I think these former students represent our hopes for the future, providing us with a meaningful perspective on the recent past as insiders. They offer us reminders of the value of teaching and learning, insights into both the accomplishments of a good liberal arts education and its, as yet, unrealized potentials. That's all for today's podcast. I'm your host, Bernd Testerbrook, and we hope that you will find the ideas discussed today to offer provocative insights into how our education could be repurposed and reimagined for the benefit of students yet to come. We have just opened up our new website, edumeasure.com, where you can comment on what you have heard, suggest new topics, and share materials that explore imaginative approaches to contemporary education. EduMeasure is produced by Ed Leonard and Baron Desterbrook, with help from our editing and engineering intern, Miranda Araujo. Thanks for listening.